Hello, Matt. Uh, welcome back from your trip. Um, we had a nice week last week with Tesla when you're away. Maybe you should go away more often. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to take that personally, but yeah, yeah. it was uh, yeah. good to get away and uh, certainly glad to be back and glad to be back with Tesla trading in the, the 870 range. That's a very nice place to be. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about today, you know, other than Tesla's. Obviously, we have our new stock pick that we've been working on for a while and and um, I guess we always start a little bit with the macro markets, though. I mean, equities have been really uh, creeping up to new all-time highs, and um, growth stocks are faring pretty well, it seems. And the debt ceiling was passed, and where this infrastructure bill is, I feel like we're on the eve of it passing. That'll be good news for a lot of the EV stocks, at least. And I don't know, you have any thoughts about where we are in a macro market? Yeah, I mean, it's we're certain, certainly at very high levels. Um, you know, I, th I think you and I both listen to the All In podcast, um, where you know you, you've got some, I think, pretty strong opinions that um, Chamath was talking a lot this week about uh, equities, uh, growth equities in particular, are in a very risky situation with you know, um, you know, kind of kind of the upcoming inflation scare that that he believes is, is coming. Uh, I, I don't think I'm completely on the, the same page as him. I think it's certainly a, a risk worth watching. Um, but I think right now what you're seeing is investors flocking to uh, kind of out of these old traditional industries that are getting disrupted and, and into kind of the, the new wave economy. So um, there's, there's a lot of noise, I think, going on right now with what's actually leading these these growth equities and, you know, all equities, frankly, um, to be trading at these, you know, historically high uh, levels but i don't think it's it's entirely without warrant especially with where interest rates are right now and you know kind of nobody wants corporate debt so yeah um, i don't know that that's kind of my take on it i, I i'm certainly gonna be evolving over time i don't think you know chamath in particular had um he was his points were entirely with, without merit but what's your yeah. what's your take on kind of the risk level in in the market and in some of these these stocks that are, are trading at relatively high levels historically speaking yeah, I think a lot of it evolves around interest rates and, you know, there's still near record lows interest rates and um, the Fed is always seemed to be talking about, you know, pretty soon we're going to have to raise interest rates. And it seems like every quarter, every every for years, you know, there's always an excuse to kind of delay it further. And I, I feel like that's going to continue, um, although somehow we're all tricked into thinking, OK, the rates are going to be raised next year. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just um, it's one of those things that I just think um, rates are kind of indefinitely going to stay low. And as long as that's the case, um, growth stocks uh, and tech stocks will uh, trade at these types of uh, valuations where people are buying into the future more so than they've done in the past with equities. So, you know, ultimately the value of any stock theoretically should really be the value of all of the dis dividends it gives out in the future discounted back to present day value, right? So you really mm -hmm. got to look out in the future for a lot of these tech stocks. You know, we all know Tesla, we talk about that and we've, you know, broached the subject of dividends in the future, but there's a lot of tech stocks out there that people invest in because they like how it's growing, but it's hard to imagine when some of these stocks would ever give dividends. Like, I don't think, I think that's in the back of everyone's mind, but somehow we still pay top dollar for these growth stocks, you know, um, hoping that it turns into the next, you know, Apple or, you know, Apple is paying a dividend now, you know, that probably seems like an incredible deal compared to what it traded at 10 years ago. 
So yeah, it's it's true. I mean, yeah, I think people a lot of times just think of tech stocks as you know being these these fast growing companies that will you know generate cash flows you know, 20 years from now or 10 years from now. But in yeah. a lot of cases, that's not true. Like with a, an Apple and uh, increasingly uh, Tesla as well. I mean, I think Elon has pushed off the the uh, conversation of, of dividends, but I don't think they're, they're too far away from that, honestly. I mean, looking at their operating cash flow generation, um, it, it's really strong right now. And, and um, I believe will uh, become even stronger as, as uh, full self-driving becomes a kind of a bigger um, opt-in option for uh for more purchasers um you know time you know we'll we'll, we'll tell how accurate that is but um there yeah. it, it's certainly true that there's kind of a variation among the different tech stocks of you know like a company like lemonade is very far out from yeah you know getting cash flow positive let alone paying a yeah. dividend whereas tesla's kind of in that middle ground maybe and then you've got like apple and um you know microsoft and google which are just like, these yeah. cra crazy cash cows already so yeah. they won't all be impacted the same for sure as these rates change. Yeah. I mean, same with, uh, I guess our big topic of the week is Rocket Lab. Um, you know, that's very far out from ever being able to pay a dividend too. Uh, yet we are big fans and we've grown to really like it and have conviction on it in our portfolio. Um, I know I went on uh, Dave Lee's channel uh, a couple nights ago and we had a nice friendly uh, debate about it. Um, uh, so, you know, I, it was, uh, some people, I read some of the comments from his, uh, channel. I think, he, you know, he's got quite a lot more subscribers than us. So it's good feedback. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get a yeah. lot of a wide range. You know, some people say, I mean, you don't know what the heck you're talking about to, you know, Emmett, I agree hundred percent with you, you know, so it was very divisive. You could tell. And, you know, I admittedly am not a rocket scientist. I'm not a astrophysicist. Don't necessarily know the terms of, going to orbit, uh, the exact speed you have to reach to get to orbit versus just experience weightlessness, um, for a little while, like blue origin. So I don't know all the, those details. Um, but I, I feel like I know enough, you know, to be dangerous, sort of a quote I heard you say once when we were talking informally, I feel like I know enough to be dangerous in the investing community and investing world to feel like we think rocket lab has a huge opportunity in the, in the investing space to become much more highly valued in time. Um, so, yeah, I know we've been looking at this for a few months now, Matt, right? I mean, what are you, what are yeah. your, how did you come to terms with Rocket Lab and developing conviction? Um, yeah, so, so I've been following Rocket Lab for you know, years now. You know, I, I've been a huge fan of uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, his channel. Um, and so I've been, he, he's done interviews with, with Peter Beck for quite some time, the CEO and CTO and chief engineer, whatever. He's got all these same, same sort of titles that, that Elon has with uh, SpaceX. So he's he's very clearly the CEO, the man in charge, but he also really knows the technical details and can kind of, you know, nerd out with Tim, a guy who who really knows the technical details way better than, than you or I do. Um, and, and he can really speak intelligently about all the, you know, the kind of trade-offs. And um, so, you know, one of the, the first things that stuck out to me as, as a company, you know, before, well, you know, years ago, or at least a year ago when they were still private, um, you know, it was just the fact that they had managed to, to reach orbit successfully many times. Um, uh, and, and like you were saying at the, at the outset of this conversation, reaching orbit is so much more difficult than just kind of like touching, um, you know, the, that, whatever that line is called, I also forget the, the name of it. Yeah. Uh, but like you're using all your fuel to go kind of straight up, whereas, you know, to actually uh, place a payload into orbit, you need to really maximize the lateral trajectory uh, of the vehicle so that you can, um, you know, kind of match the, uh, the falling to earth, um, 
through gravity with that kind of horizontal velocity. So there's just a, a massive amount of um, uh, extra thrust that you need to be able to, to do that. And it's incredibly difficult. Uh, one of the stats I heard from uh, one of Peter Beck's interviews that I listened to is since 2015, they've been tracking 140 different small launch startups. Um, and only one other company has, has successfully made it to orbit. Um, and, and none of them have been able to do it, you know, to the reliability level, the, the low cost level that um, that Rocket Lab has. So yeah, of course, you know, SpaceX is the clear leader, as you said in, in your Dave Lee interview, and as we, we said in our, our research note that we put out, um, but there's, there's plenty of room in this, you know, I think almost everyone would agree that, that space is gonna be a, a massively growing industry over the next, you know, coming decades. Um, so there's going to be plenty of room for a number two, and it seems really clear to me that uh, Rocket Lab is best positioned to to kind of be that number two. Um, you know, ULA is kind of like the incumbent that's going to get runner. Uh, you got these other startups that are struggling. Uh, none of them have kind of the heritage, the launch um, history, the the reliability statistics, and frankly, the low cost that that Rocket Lab has. So I think they've got just about everything going for them. Um, and, and I really like them as an investment, frankly. Yeah, I agree. So I how, mean, how about you? When did, when did you first become kind of aware and, and what was your um, yeah. kind of initial thoughts? I just first became aware early, at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I think they announced their SPAC in January. I saw some headlines on that and didn't, I, it just, you know, I, I think I had heard of the name Rocket Lab in the past when maybe uh, they launched something to orbit initially and, Elon congratulated them a couple of years ago, maybe or something on getting to lower earth orbit or something, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't think they were anything to worry about for SpaceX. You know, I was a big fan. I still am a big fan of SpaceX. I still own, you know, you know, that's a big part of my personal portfolio is the SpaceX special purpose vehicle holding I have. So mm -hmm. I'm still a big fan. Um, but Rocket Lab, uh, after their SPAC announcement um, for, you know, rumors of that in January, February or, you know, official a press release on that, then a number of people were reaching out to, to me, you know, I'm, we're always getting all these ideas presented to us, you know, of all kinds of things. Most of them I just dismiss, or I look briefly, I'm like, nah. And for some reason, the rocket lab thing kind of stuck out to me. And after I looked at it and I looked a little closer, like Peter Beck, you know, I, I listened to a couple of his interviews. I got to that point. And then I just became, became more enamored with him and what mm -hmm. they're doing because his story is fascinating. He seems like one of those, like, really impressive founders that you know um is dedicating his life to to this i mean he's not an elon musk that's like a, a once every thousand year founder or person <laughs> it seems like um but you know peter beck is in my mind right up there with the you know a possible success of someone like uh you know uh, sam bankman friedman of ftx which is another generational founder kind of guy i look at right now um, as someone to watch mm -hmm. and, and some of these other, I don't know if he's like a Steve jobs level guy, probably not, but, um, it just seems like he knows what he's doing. He's like skipped college right out of high school, went to designing, doing jobs to help him figure out how to design rockets. Like he knew what he wanted to do from an early age, bright guy from New Zealand, you know, um, but he set up the company in the U S figured out how to lobby Congress to have the U S company be able to launch from New Zealand as well as the U S. So they have a lot of capability. It's just an incredible story. The more I, I learn about him personally, and then the more I learn about the company and his vision for it being vertically integrated, offering not just launch services, but they're building satellites. Um, they're uh, trying to figure out the software to manage uh, the satellite orbital 
satellite stuff. Um, they just bought a company in Denver for 40 million bucks that basically focuses on that. So they're really trying to put it all together so that their customers can come to Rocket Lab and only worry about the instrument they're putting in space. They don't have to worry about the orbiting of it. They don't have to worry about maybe even the building of a satellite or anything like Rocket Lab will build it all. They just have to worry about whatever their unique businesses they want to do in space. And to me, that sounds like a one, like a great one-stop shop offering. Um, and if you look at the companies, you know, and the governments that are awarding Rocket Lab contracts right now, yeah. that's pretty impressive. I mean, Rocket Lab's not like some massive company lobbying the government, you know. I mean, they lobbied to get to be able to launch from New Zealand, obviously, but I don't think they're in there trying to like sue congress to make sure it's a competitive landscape luckily they had spacex do that for them you know but now that it is a competitive you know uh landscape they're being awarded some of the pie on all these on many of these contracts and to me that's the biggest signal that um you know our conviction is more likely correct than not and uh you know it's a risk it is a risk it's a six billion market cap company but if you don't have risk, there's not not much reward. Typically, you know, there was a big risk in Tesla early on, you know, so a lot yeah. of the greatest stocks are seen as a big risk for a long time, you know. Yeah. Now, it's, I think I think the point on, um, you know, Peter Beck kind of being a visionary is is super important. But in, in my mind, it's, it's not only uh, having the vision, but it, it's the track record they've had of successfully executing. I mean, they've had you know some really hard challenges that they've executed on already and, and like you were saying the fact that he's kind of had this vision since he was a kid um you know skipped college went to work at a tool and die shop just because he knew he he needed to learn how to like manufacture rockets on his own so like he had this vision and was just you know like took a you know a, a non-glamorous job for a number of, or i don't know how long he was doing it exactly but um just to kind of get that skill set and that knowledge base built up you know, was, was able to, you know, 3D print these engines, um, you know, you know, design the, this, this, you know, carbon fiber rocket body, yeah. uh, got the manufacturing facilities up and running, you know, was able to you know, successfully operate a startup company on two different, like two yeah. polar opposite ends of the world. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing that the stuff that they've been able to done. And as, as we alluded to already, obviously reaching orbit is incredibly hard. Now they've done that reliably, you know, they're, they're talking about, um, catching, they're, they're pretty far along the path actually of, of catching and reusing that first stage um, of the electron, which is like kind of crazy that, cause it was not designed to do that. So, um, the, I mean, the execution so far has been phenomenal. And when you look at their their financials, which <laughs> I'm want to do and, and, you know, with an early stage company, financials are, are clearly not everything, um, but they're doing a huge amount of, of really impressive stuff uh, while spending like very little, um, you know, their, their gross margins went from, I think it was like negative 67% last year, something like that to positive 13% um, on ad admittedly a very small kind of base of, of launches. Um, and right now they've got a backlog that represents like two to three years worth of, of revenue. So, so they're, you know, they're constrained right now by COVID and kind of launch cadence that they can get out of New Zealand because New Zealand's in this kind of crazy lockdown right now. Um, you know, but their financials, when I start looking at them, I'm like, they, they've already proven operating leverage on a really, really small you know, uh, revenue base of, you know, run rate, rate of something like $60 million per year. Um, so the, if you can kind of fast forward a little bit and, and imagine what their financials will be like when they're, um, you know, selling a lot more of these, these services uh, to other providers and, you know, providing fully integrated launch services and they're, they're able to service a, a bigger part of, uh, 
the, the launch kind of manifests, I think there's, you know, a very strong likelihood that their financial profile will be, you know, really good. Uh, yeah. they, they seem to really, um, that they're moving incredibly fast uh, and doing a lot with, with uh, frankly, a very small team. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, we I still like love, it. we still love Tesla. That's our top conviction name overall, you yeah. know, and we love um, uh, SpaceX, you know, we're big Elon fans, SpaceX fans, but it doesn't mean you can't also love a stock outside the Elon Tesla Twitterverse, you know, like Rocket Lab is a stock outside of the, you know, our, our kind of tunnel vision that we're used to that we just came across and, you know, we really like the story and, the, you know, the setup for it at a six billion market cap value it just seems too good to be true to me personally. Um, but um, maybe I'm missing something and maybe it's never going to be much more than a six billion market cap company. I don't know. Um, so but I, I think the risk reward is there for a, a significant um, increase in its valuation, um, considering that I, we think it's, you know, a clear second place for basically all of industry and space for the you know next year for the years to come and so it's a very fast growing industry and um yeah i think we're, we're thinking about uh getting some kind of specialists you know, maybe like an astrophysicist or a rocket scientist type guy a couple couple people that are kind of specialists on the on the physics of rockets to talk in a kind of a roundtable discussion matt right in a few weeks maybe yeah. me you and a couple other guys can Kind of have a, a roundtable discussion about Rocket Lab and SpaceX and the differences of their rockets and so forth. I think that would be really neat for just you and I to learn, but also to open source that learning with the community and folks that follow our channel just to see what 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 we can discover more about the details. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always love bringing on outside uh, you know viewpoints. I think that's been really helpful so far with these conversations and. Yeah, especially yeah. with the the space industry, it's it's so um, it, it's very nuanced. It's it's you know it, on the on the one hand, it's it's highly regulated. There's a lot of you know kind of restrictions of you know who can launch and when, and you know you need like FAA clearances to launch, and so that there's yeah. a lot of kind of technical restrictions. Um, and at the same time, it's it's also this like kind of wild west of all these startups, and everyone's trying these different approaches and. Um, it's yeah. kind of unclear who the, who the winners are going to be in the long term. So I think it's a really exciting time um, and, and certainly, you know, as many voices as we can get to make sure that we're as informed as possible. I think it's be a good thing, of course, yeah. for the audience, everyone else listening to want this to, yeah. to be kind of educational as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess the next topic and we'll take question and answers at the end. Some will probably be Rocket Lab or Tesla or whatever we'll talk about. But uh, we wanted to talk about the Bitcoin ETFs a bit. Um, you know, the first ones are started trading today, I think, the Bitcoin futures ETFs. So it's like sort of a double derivative again. And, you know, the ETF is, you know, based on Bitcoin futures, which is based on Bitcoin. You know, so it's like a double derivative of Bitcoin in a way. And there's all kinds of things with like this contango and stuff. So it might not be necessarily a long term um, investment, uh, ideal investment for Bitcoin exposure. But the fact that it is an ETF and, and uh, you know, guaranteed by the CFTC uh, Commodities uh, and Futures Trading Commission, I think is what it stands for. That's a big statement right there. You know, a U.S. exchange traded ETF for Bitcoin exposure that opens the door to so many people, you know, so many people, millions of 
high net worth, mom and pop retail investors have been hearing about Bitcoin from their kids or grandkids for so long, probably. They have no idea how to buy it. You know, I like my dad, for example, years ago when I first discovered Bitcoin, I was telling him all about it and I was trying to get him. And he tried to look into buying it, you know, with his UBS advisor or whatever, and he couldn't figure it out. He even like signed up for an account on like Mt. Gox or something at the time. <laughs> couldn't <laughs> couldn't figure out how to wire his money there and just never got around to buying it because he couldn't figure it out. So I'm imagining that type of discussion goes on all the time with kids and the older generations. But now that you can type in a ticker symbol, an ETF that's exchange traded, you know, the grayscale Bitcoin people say, oh, yeah, but that wasn't exchange traded. And some brokerages don't really trade things that are not exchange traded, for example. Or if you have like a wealth advisor, the wealth advisor will talk you out of buying things that are not exchange yeah. traded, that are over the counter stocks. So there's a lot of advantages, a much bigger audience and distribution capability when it's an ETF, a US ETF. So I think this opens the door to a whole new wave of people that want some exposure to Bitcoin that can now do so with the click of a button very easily. Yeah, it, I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, I'm obviously on the, the younger end of the, the investor spectrum um, overall, but it, even I was probably late to the party on Bitcoin just because I didn't want to open a new account somewhere. Um, you know, like if, if, if you already happen to have an account at Robinhood or something like that, then you could always have, you know, uh, traded it relatively easily. Um, but uh, being index traded is absolutely uh, uh, going to bring in some new investors that, you know, maybe were interested, but didn't want to go and set up a new account somewhere. So I, I think it's certainly, um, you know, good news. I don't know, maybe good news isn't the right word, but uh, it will bring in some some more interest into the into the, to the space. And I think it's just kind of one of um, a string of recent announcements that's going to kind of continue to open the door towards uh, additional investors getting into the space. Okay, you're back. Um, now, we lost you for a half yeah. a second there. Said oh, sorry. By you. All right. So, what were you saying there? I was just saying, you know, it's it's one of a, a string of recent um, announcements. Um, you know, like you know, PayPal's now um, doing stuff. There's a couple other entities where you know, you know more and more financial uh, services, um, you know, uh, providers are having some way for investors to access, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies now. And I think that that trend is just going to continue to uh, expand over time. And, and the more I can get into kind of, the, you know, the traditional uh, brokerage space, I think that's, that's you know, going to, you know, do more towards increasing prices overall and, um, you know, increasing exposure for the, for the general market. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch where this goes. You, you mentioned, you know, Contango, and, and there certainly are some, some risks because investors need to be aware this is not, you know, backed by actual holdings of Bitcoin. Um, I mean, these are futures contracts uh, that are entered into. And so you, you can look at, you know, there are um, a lot of like uh, ETFs that, that trade on gold or silver. And those do, I, I, I looked at this like five years ago. Um, and my recollection from that time is that those ETFs tend to, which are futures based, tend to underperform, you know, to, um, the actual kind of spot prices over time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because there are some commission costs, there are traders that can kind of know when these futures contracts roll on and off and, you know, will, will you know, yeah. kind of spike up the prices in the short term. So there are some risks associated with that. So, you know, for me personally, I'd rather kind of custody the actual coins rather than, you know, have a futures ETF, but um, it will yeah, get some, some greater exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we'll see when the, the spot Bitcoin ETFs come out. I think there's a lot of uh, speculation that that could be around the corner, but I guess it's all up to this uh, SEC guy, Gensler, and what his kind of decision making is on that. We'll see. Time will tell. 
but yeah, the spot ETFs will be another step forward. The spot Bitcoin ETFs um, when those come out. Um, Tesla earnings tomorrow, <laughs> big day. I feel like every Tesla earnings feels like Christmas Eve to me. Like <laughs> as a kid, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm even though I'm disappointed, like with the price action the next day, probably more than half the time, like last last time last quarter. It felt like Christmas Eve. The earnings came out. I was like, yeah, I felt like I got the best Christmas present. And then I was disappointed the next day with the price action. Yeah. <laughs> but I still get that giddy feeling going into these earnings reports like it's Christmas Eve or something. And I'm excited for a big present to be given to us. Uh, and, and even if the stock reacts negatively like it has in the past, I just know that when they print this new kind of gross margin metric and a new revenue and earnings per share metric, it's just another like benchmark you know for a, a much brighter future for tesla that we all know is going to happen like it just proves our long-term thesis even more and that's why i get excited i think is because whatever the stock does on thursday and friday um you know just seeing these historic monumental prints quarter over quarter for several quarters to come is exciting and just conviction and like knowing like, Hey, we've been right. You know, like we're vindicating our, our thesis long-term on Tesla. So, I mean, what was the gross margins that we had come up with or that you kind of uh, estimated again, Matt, uh, do you recall what it was on your, when we did it? Yeah. So it was a uh, 31.8% was the automotive gross margin. Um, the overall margin, I don't remember offhand uh, actually here. I've got it on my, my model here, 27.4% overall gross margin I'm expecting. Um, wow. So, yeah. um, you know, it would. It, it, I, I am anticipating uh, a, a roughly two percent increase in kind of the what I, what I call the core manufacturing gross margin. Um, so, you know, taking out full self-driving and regulatory credits, just uh, how profitable is the core underlying manufacturing business? Um, you know, I, I listened to, to uh, James Stevenson, who you know is, is obviously one of the you know very highly respected Tesla analysts out there. He's expecting more cost pressure that, than I am, um, so it's, it's certainly possible I'm I'm off a little bit there. Um, but even so, I think it'd be surprising if, if we're lower than like a a dollar sixty on adjusted earnings per share somewhere around there. Um, but you know, I, I do think that um, while while there's been some cost pressure, there also are a lot of uh, price increases that have um, you know been I would say in the backlog of, of Tesla's yeah. order book for a while that are just going to be hitting in Q3. And probably the bigger thing is the, um, we know like for sure, the most profitable vehicles are those made in China Model Ys that are exported to Europe. And that's gonna be a, a much larger percent of the overall deliveries this quarter uh, relative to Q2. So I, I'd be really surprised if we don't see a somewhat decent in increase in, in the automotive gross margin. Uh, I also think credits could surprise. I, I in my model that, that we did two weeks ago, I had that at about $400 million. I think that's a kind of middle of the road number. It wouldn't surprise me if there was, you know, a surprise of, you know, 600 or four, 800 million, something like that. That'd be incredible. Um, yeah. Cause I think, I think everyone's, you know, trying to, um, not get too excited about it, but there's a, a lot of, and, and to be sure, like there, there are, uh, cost increases that have, that have occurred. Um, you know, they were also talking about their, when, when they had some some part shortages, they were they would ship the the vehicle, and then at the delivery center, they would uh, fin finish the the manufacturing essentially, which is yeah. obviously not a not a profitable way to do these. But um, I think on balance, when you take kind of all the pluses and minuses together, as I try to do 
to get like a middle of the road estimate, I think we're going to have a, a pretty decent increase in, in gross margins this quarter. So yeah, I, I'm with you. It, it does feel like Christmas Eve a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. And the Chinese, the Shanghai factory has pumped out so many more cars this quarter than ever before. And those are mm -hmm. the highest margin cars and they exported more of them to Europe. That's that even higher margin for the Chinese. So just, just like it, it yeah. is a lot of setup. This, this, We've got Model S this quarter. Like, yep, you know, there's just so many. So, you know, like you've got, um, you're amortizing more of the fixed costs over, you know, a, a yeah. larger number of cars. So yeah, there, there's a lot of good things going, uh, price yeah. increases. I guess um, there's less so, full self-driving take rate probably, right? That's one thing that's mm -hmm. knocked down. More people are doing subscriptions versus paying the 10,000 up front. You know, it was only like 10 or 20% previously anyway, but still that was significant when you're taking half of that right away as income, I think, versus now you're probably missing most of that and just getting a 199 subscription per month, right? Sure, sure. But so I even, I so um, the, the model that I had de developed, I estimated 18% in Q2. Um, and for my Q3 projection, projection, I dropped that down to 13%. So, okay. you know, a, a pretty significant drop there to account for exactly what you're saying. Now, I, I did add a little bit of subscriptions, but that's only like, you know, $20 million of revenue. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 you know, the, the drop in take rate certainly hurts a lot more than the subscriptions help. Yeah. Um, the stock right now is trading pretty much flat on the day, pretty negligible. I mean, I kind of suspected that Monday would be the last like big buy in the rumor day. And seems like that's the pattern is like the day before earnings and the day of earnings, the stock is sort of just volatile back and forth, but essentially flat usually or down a little bit after a run up the week before. Um, so it seems like a lot of the institutional buy on the rumor stuff, in my opinion happens maybe the week before, you know, a couple weeks before even slowly and speeds up until like two days before earnings. And then they get ready to sell, you know, on the earnings. So if that's true, then there's going to be a lot of selling, obviously, uh, right after, the, you know, on Thursday. Um, but if that happens, will, this, will, will, will there be more net selling than net buying? Um, we'll find out from the price action on Thursday. But I wouldn't be surprised to see it down $50 on Thursday, even if, you know, based on the movement we've had up in the last, you know, three weeks or month or whatever, you know, like I wouldn't be surprised to see the stock really uh, go up or down $50, you know? Um, so it's, it's interesting. So it's exciting Christmas Eve, you know, we're excited about the numbers, but for a short term, like stock play for, you know, day trading <laughs> these earnings reports on, it's very, very hard to tell which way the stock is going to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it could be a little dangerous. And, you know, if, if you look at the options right now, implied volatility is at a, a you know, pretty high level for short term options. That will obviously uh, spike down, um, you know, immediately at open on Thursday. So, yeah, if you're if you're anyone who's interested in playing options, just just use extreme caution because uh, <laughs> yeah. prices could certainly use a caution. Right, Matt, we've been we don't talk about all our plays, but we certainly use some some balance of caution and 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 risk in our options involvement. Yeah, no, it, it's it, it's true. We um, yeah, I think we can safely say we did have a, a play which we disclosed partially i think in the past that you know kind of anticipated yeah. this run-up that we've seen so that's done yeah. really well and, and uh we'll, yeah. we'll continue to to use caution yeah 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 <laughs> so i mean we hope nothing i mean we hope tesla goes up to a thousand bucks from earning an incredible earnings print you know that's not impossible um but mm -hmm. we're just setting our expect we're, we're setting our expectations that could also go down 50 
$50 after an incredible earnings print, you know, as a kind of a new base and then kind of go up from there over the coming weeks and months after that, I would say. But, um, you know, long term, we're very, from a long term perspective, we're very excited about this print uh, and what it says about the long term fundamentals of the stock. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Q, Q2 really surprised me. I mean, I was genuinely shocked that they were able to to get the margins that they, they could um, in a quarter, which didn't seem like it was drastically higher than Q1 in terms of, you know, deliveries. There was no incremental FSD recognition. Um, so there were there was not any any kind of major surprise that, that seemed to kind of justify the margins they could get. So uh, it was really just kind of outstanding execution. Um, and so really curious to see whether they build on that in Q3. And I think it's more likely than not that they will. Uh, but yeah. we'll just see. It's always fun to kind of check in on that business and, and see how uh, how strong they're going. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, um, is there anything else about Tesla we want to talk about? Or should we just kind of go into uh, an earnings, uh, I mean, question and answers on stuff maybe? Should we go to Q&A? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's jump into that. And just so people know, we're missing our uh, behind the scenes guy, Alec, this week, who's really runs the show and prompts a bunch of questions for us. And um, he did a really good job giving us uh, some information to run this without him and um, just stay patient with us as we get through the question and answers now is uh, we're going to be kind of manually looking at them and pulling them up instead of just having them pop up for us to read. So Matt, I'll start going over some questions first, then I'll pick up some questions. Yeah. yeah so there's been, I've seen probably at least three different uh, questions on, on Coinbase um, mm. pop up here. So, um, you know, that's, that's one you may, maybe I can take a crack at, uh, at talking about our, our thoughts on that. Um, yeah. So, so Coinbase is a, a name that we, we've taken a small position in for quite some time now. Um, essentially, hey, I've got the question up. I'm impressed. I pulled it up. I found one question up on that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And then you go over the Twitter ones, then I'll go over more of the YouTube chat ones. Okay. But sure. Go on the Coinbase sure. One. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think after uh, the, they IPO'd, there was, I, I think, strong consensus among just about everybody that the kind of crazy margin numbers and growth numbers that, that they saw in, in the most uh, recent quarter, I think it was Q1. Uh, maybe it was Q2. Um, uh, were essentially not sustainable. Um, so, so you know, they they had these like crazy strong growth numbers and and re really high gross margin numbers. And so then, if you look at the Wall Street analysts, everyone was expecting kind of a tapering down of, of revenues and even more so of of margins. Um, so as I was looking at the opportunity, I thought, well, it's possible that that thesis is wrong and that they will have um, better staying power on their pricing than analysts are expecting. And, and if that was the case, and they were just able to kind of maintain some modest level of growth at reasonable margins, then the stock should have, you know, tripled or, or so, um, you know, relative to the level that it had been. Um, so, you know, that was, you know, maybe there was only a 20% chance that that thesis was true and, you know, a larger chance that uh, Wall Street was right. But it seemed reasonable given that, you know, the, the market was pricing in kind of the opposite of perfection like the market was pricing in a peak that had uh was historical and i was saying what if the peak is in the future or we were saying what if the peak is in the future so we took a, a small position based on that and and we're up modestly on that i think so far uh and I, I still think it's it's possible um that you know coinbase has a lot better uh staying power than uh, analysts are expecting you know i'm a i'm a customer of coinbase i like the the kyc process that they have I feel really good about the security protocols they have in place. 
so even though I know there are kind of cheaper options out there, for me, I kind of like the convenience. I like knowing that you know all my IRS documentation is going to be on point. Uh, customer service experiences I've had have been really good, and so you know I, I know that I'm paying a premium to use them, but I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with that. So I think there's probably others like me that kind of want to use that that premium product um, for the you know just wanting to avoid the pain of an audit <laughs> from the from the IRS. Uh, on top of that, you know they're building out this NFT program. They were trying to launch um, you know the um, the, the lending program, uh, Brian Armstrong is another founder who I think is, is really um, impressive the more I, I hear from him. So I think, um, you know, my view is there's this core business that they've had historically of just kind of, you know, trading fees um, in the market. I, I think the, the market cap is probably fairly priced, maybe even, even underpricing that just on that core business. Uh, and to me, there's optionality and all these other businesses that they could add on on top. So I, yeah. I I like Coinbase. I think it's kind of a good option play, honestly. High risk for sure, but um, I think there's a lot of upside potential there. Yeah, I really like the NFT. Um, you know, FTX just came out with NFT you know capabilities a week or two. You know, they're much more fast and nimble. I like FTX as the premier global crypto exchange and NFT exchange. You know, to be honest, I like them. If I could buy them, I would. Um, but Coinbase, uh, you know, is also a strong player. There's, you know, there's room for multiple major crypto NFT, you know, um, marketplaces that are like global. You know, as we come to and come into a new era where those are sort of big parts of uh, everyone's portfolio, um, is having some amount of crypto and or NFT digital collectibles and such. So I do like that Coinbase is trying to move fast on the NFT marketplace. Um, I think that in a sense almost doubles their total addressable market in, in some ways in the medium to long term if they, you know if they do that well. Um, you know I don't know about double, but it increases their total addressable market significantly you know versus just offering uh, cryptocurrencies. And like Matt, you were saying, they also have the ability to kind of cross sell, multi develop new things like they could offer. Who's to say Coinbase doesn't come out with, um, you know, uh, Robin Hood type product for exchange traded products, stocks too, at some point and cross sell all their current uh, crypto clients say, hey, why don't you borrow from some of your crypto holdings to buy some stocks through us too, you know. So there's yeah. lots of directions they can go and, you know, they seem pretty nimble and young and new and you know i don't know a ton about the guy brian armstrong but a lot of people are very impressed with him and his leadership um so there seems to be a lot of upside potential you know we don't have enough time to really specialize on on you know with super high conviction on more than a few stocks at a time um you know right now tesla um rocket lab roblox you know we've dove, dove into laminate a bunch and coinbase we've kind of dove into somewhat but uh there's a lot more we diving into we could do but i do think um ftx uh is an exchange that is sort of uh to me uh something that could overtake coinbase uh medium to long term so we'll see um but coinbase i think has a bright future and you know um it's valued at well, like 60 billion or 70 billion market cap right now you know it could get to a couple hundred billion market cap who knows um I, you know We'll see. Time will tell. Uh, but the market's trying to figure out how to value it still. And it could be much higher in another few months if if they have a few good earnings reports here strung back to back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their, their Q2 was really strong, but the uh, market didn't really uh, react well. So I think if Q3 is 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 really strong as well, that, that kind of 
to me would would put a lot of sustained pressure to kind of revalue it back at least towards the, the 350 range, maybe even higher. So um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious. We're certainly entering earnings season right now, uh, and I'm 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 going to be really excited to see how a lot of these these tech earnings shake out. Yeah. All right, you want to read a couple of the Twitter questions, Matt, and we'll. Yeah. So uh, here's one. Uh, Shakar Raheja says, I find Rocket Lab's track record very promising. Having said that, so far they have not had a direct competition with SpaceX, but this changes once Neutron is ready. How do you see this future development? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the, the future development of Rocket Lab and SpaceX is basically, it's asking, you know, I, I was just trying to figure out how to take this question off the bottom when you're reading that. So I don't, I, you know, uh, what, what you want to take a stab at it so, first, Matt? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially Rocket Lab is um, is developing this, this Neutron rocket, which, uh, you know, will be uh, roughly competing with Falcon Falcon 9 in terms of kind of the, the payloads and the, and the orbits that it can provide. Um, so, you know, I, th I think the question is, is you know, essentially saying nobody's been able to compete with Falcon 9 basically at all, um, as long as that's been around. Uh, so, so now that Rocket Lab is kind of stepping into that that space, um, why is there any reason to believe that anybody will sign up for for those services? And um, you know, basically, like, will, will the growth story dry up as they try to enter this bigger market, um, but that has a, a better competitor in it compared to where they are with Electron right now? Um, I think that's a really reasonable point of view, to be honest with you. Um, that said, I think, you know, NASA and all the launch providers like having competition. Uh, and I think Rocket Lab has proven that they're really cost effective as well. Um, so so they're um, certainly going to be reusing the first stage. Peter Beck has spoken a lot about that. They're going to use propulsive landing. Um, so they, they have to execute, uh, to be sure. Um, but they do have... Um, I think there's a, a very reasonable point of view that they'll be able to do so at a roughly cost cost parity with with uh, SpaceX. They also have this may not be the the biggest advantage in the world, but they do own their own launch facility in New Zealand, um, and so so they have a little bit more autonomy, at least in theory, of kind of directing when those um, launches are ready. I mean, they don't need to wait for all the you know kind of Air Force Base to okay and you know FAA clearances and everything. They the New Zealand Space Agency was actually kind of um, started on the back of uh, Peter Beck, just basically saying they needed some sort of regulatory agency. So it, it's it was essentially created to serve um, Rocket Lab. Uh, you know they they were, Peter Beck was also saying you know with uh, certain types of of orbits they actually have a, a slight. Um, advantage relative to launching out of Cape Canaveral because they don't have to travel east for quite so long uh, based on where they are. And so this, you know, kind of gets into a lot of the specifics. But uh, the, the bottom line, I think, is that um, there's room for two launch providers within that class. ULA is not competitive at all. Um, you know, so SpaceX and having some redundancy from other sites and from other companies, I think is gonna be a good healthy thing for the industry overall. So maybe they don't have, you know, 80% of the market like SpaceX does, but, you know, even if they only have, you know, 20, 30%, um, I think they can, that can still be viable, kind of get them into that next level of, of growth um, to, to the point where they'll be focusing on those space applications, which is kind of the, the long-term, I think, destination that, the, that they're thinking about. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, let me read the next question, which is related. 
from um, Tal Miller on Twitter. Please discuss Rocket Lab's financials and valuation based on that rather than as a percentage of total space industry. How many launches they make today and future forecasts and how much profit per launch than discount to present day? I mean, that's uh, like a full-fledged, you know, model. Um, you know, I don't know if we've really written out how many launches exactly we think they're going to do year by year for the next several years. Um, they they put out their own kind of estimates on some of this, I think, in their financial reports they've disclosed. Uh, and so we sort of lean on that. And we've looked at a, a number of uh, research reports from, you know, professional space analysts that are, you know, 20, 30 pages long on Rocket Lab specifically, and uh, they have their models. Um, that's not our business is to come up with a 20 or 30 page model necessarily. Um, you know, we, we think kind of a little differently about our how we make investment decisions. Um, and uh, I mean, I, we could probably, that's why I think we're going to do a round table in a, in, a, in a few weeks, probably with some people that can talk more detailed about, you know, the profit per launch, these guys, whether it's one of those, um, what do they call them? The, the rendezvous launches, you know, the, the launches where, you know, you take someone along for the ride and, and let them off halfway on the way to your destination. You know, there's different types of launches and different probability mm -hmm. for the different types. Um, but it seems to us that, you know, uh, the valuation of 6 billion, um, is more than reasonable for being in second place and in, in this kind of industry. Um, but that's, that's sort of yeah. you know, where we start at and we work backwards from there, I guess. And I don't know, Matt, you, you probably are more on diving in on the numbers than I am. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, we did, you know, we, we did, um, in, in our research report, we actually did do, you know, a valuation now with, with any company like this, uh, this early kind of in the, in the growth phase. Um, so people know our know, research report is on our website goodsoilinvestment.com you go to articles research we have like a two-page research two or three-page research report which has some metrics some numbers in there like matt was saying but sorry matt go on yeah yeah so you know essentially what we did is you know we looked at the at the private valuation of spacex relative to our estimate of the, of the revenue kind of came up with a price to sales ratio um and then applied that to i think it was 2026 uh revenue that they were forecasting um 2027 sorry yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we, we did an actual valuation. Uh, we discounted that back to the present using, you know, a cost of equity. So, you know, we're, we're not just kind of throwing out, um, you know, random numbers here. We, you know, we actually think number, that there's yeah. a, there's a, so, so we came up with a, a share price of just over $30 based on that. Now, obviously there's, you know, execution risk in there and, and there's, there's some, you know, other, other risk, fact, risk factors. Uh, but with where the company is right now, with how well they've executed to date with, you know, the crazy backlog that they have right now. Um, and, and frankly, just the, the amazing team that they have in place. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great option to, um, you know, in, invest in, in rocket lab. And I'm, I'm really kind of excited to, to be doing it here. Yeah. Let's move on to a Tesla question from Andrew Gabriel on Twitter. What will Tesla's gross margin percentage be this quarter in our view? Something else predicted the rapid rise. And rise. We already talked about this. I think we you said like 27% or something. Is that right, Matt? Uh, yeah, that was the overall margin, I think. So the 27.4% yeah, was the overall gross margin that I'm forecasting. 31.8 um, is the automotive gross margin. Okay. Um, and it's less than it's less than 30% if you back out credits, which a lot of people do. Yeah. 
Um, but I think that's a confusing the thing. People quote the number of with credits is. or without, and you got to figure out which yeah. one you're quoting. I mean, 27% without credit seems pretty high to me, but that's that's pretty incredible if they do that. I think Elon has, and as part of his compensation package, the last milestone is he has to have a quarter or a year or something probable of 30% or more gross margins. Is that right? Do you recall? Um, I don't remember that exact. Yeah, there's something um, one of the nine milestones stuff. of his compensation package is that they have to have like a quarter or a year that's probable of having gross margins of 30% or more. I don't know if anyone in the chat remembers specifically. I mean, a lot of people that watch us know, know Tesla as well as we do. It's great and give us lots of insight. So if anyone recalls that, throw it out there. But I know that's the last milestone that, you know, so it's definitely on his target. So I wonder if they hit that target this quarter, the 30% plus, or maybe that'll be one of the next quarters. It seems like it'd be hard. This quarter seems like the best quarter to me because the next quarters, they're going to be ramping up the factory. I think there's going to, I don't know, Matt, to me, it seems like as they ramp up new production lines, there's a big cost of capital. Like when they had to re-ramp up the Model S line, there was a quarter where it kind of, they talked about how it detracted from their gross margins. Because yeah. And so I feel like that's going to happen for a few quarters here as they kind of ramp up initial production lines for Giga Austin and, and Giga Berlin. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't think that'll necessarily hurt in Q3 because I don't think, um, you know- Yeah, the, not Q3, the, but Q4 and beyond. Q4 yeah. and going forward, yeah. So I, I do think when I'm doing the modeling, you know, I have the gross automotive gross margins, at least the, the manufacturing. So excluding uh, full self-driving, because there will be some incremental recognition of that, which will probably offset the um, the startup costs. But uh, yeah, I do have the the core manufacturing gross margins that, that I forecast dropping. Um, over the next couple quarters, because yeah, you 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 are going to have less efficient plants coming online. Um, so you know, Fremont and um, Shanghai will almost certainly continue to improve and, and do well. And those are really you know, Shanghai in particular is incredibly optimized right now. Um, but you know, it, it used to get I don't know what maybe you know twenty thousand vehicles out of Austin. In I don't maybe it won't even be Q four. Maybe it won't be quite that many. But um, you know, the, the margins on those will be you know, possibly even negative, um, but maybe like close to zero, which is just how it was in Shanghai. So you need to kind yeah. of weigh all those and, and kind of do like a weighted average margin assumption to um, yeah. get to an overall margin. Yeah. All right, let's go to some questions from YouTube again. I think we answered most of the ones on Twitter in our discussion already, but this one here from JB, given Tesla's run, are you still holding your June 23,000 short puts? We get indeed sure are those have been doing really well i mean i think we sold them around 500 dollars. we've talked about that now what are they trading i'm pulling up my the account and it looks like they're trading for not even half that yet um or a little more than half that 285 dollars something like that 280 dollars 81 dollars the last price i see so yeah we've we've done quite well um Typically, I think when we sell our options and maybe we'll keep the same philosophy for the long-term options is we, we, we sell the, when we sell the options for premium, we'll buy them back, uh, once they're worth 10%, you know, anywhere from zero to 20% of the value we sold them for, we'll just buy them back to close the position. So if those options get to close to a hundred dollars, uh, I, I would assume we'd probably try to Maybe sooner um, we'd start closing out of those positions. And it looks like the Delta is 0.46 right now. I don't know what the gamma is, but if the Delta was to stay at 0.46 or 47, let's say, um, you know, the stock would have to go up another, you know, uh, let's see, 
three or four hundred dollars until it got to a hundred dollar premium for these put options. Um, And that's not counting the theta decay between now and whatever time frame that is. So, yeah, as the stock goes up, we'll close out of that position at some point. But we're we're loving that trade we put on. Uh, It's worked out really well. Yeah. And so ironically, we probably would have done better if we we chosen June 22 puts instead of June 23. But I think the the, the risk profile of that was not something we necessarily wanted to to have. So, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's at the point now where, where it's kind of more time value uh, is still outstanding as opposed to intrinsic value. At least I think it's, I think that's, I think that's about right. Um, so, yeah. you know, if Tesla crosses a thousand, then, you know, you've only got time value left. So hopefully uh, if it ticks up enough above a thousand, then, then yeah, you get to a good, good enough point where we could close it out. Yeah. Um, from Aaron L, did good sell buy Rocket Lab Leap or stock? Uh, we bought a bunch of the um, uh, SPAC uh, before it converted to Rocket Lab BACQ. And then we bought a bunch of those warrants back uh, back then too. Um, the warrants, admittedly, uh, we don't fully understand. I mean, this is our first time into a major warrants position. We've researched as much as we can, but you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so we're cautious about the warrants, obviously. Um, uh, we own a bunch of them, but they're issued by the the company, not an exchange. So there's uncertainties uh, regard with regards to that and when they recall the warrants and, you know, the timeline you have to pick which option you want to choose for their recall of the warrants. So there's certain different risk factors or different variables involved in warrants that we're trying to uh, keep a close eye on. But we are looking at some long-term Rocket Lab options. We haven't really, um, you know you know, we may or may not buy some. So uh, we'll just leave it at that, I guess. Um, let's see. Next question. Um, okay, let's see. What do you, let's see, from life at 130 beats per minute. Uh, what do you think about Jan 2024 put sales as a conservative way to play Rocket Lab? Hmm. $15 puts currently at $8 premium. Wow. That is a pretty good risk reward premium there. Uh, I'd, we'd have to look at, look at that. That sounds interesting. You know, uh, you're getting more than half of, uh, the strike price <laughs> as a premium. Um, yeah. I wonder what the, um, margin requirement is to hold, you know, those puts as naked puts. Uh, we'd have to look at that, but that looks really, uh, interesting, intriguing. Thanks for the idea. Um, similar to what we did with Tesla, but maybe even more of a, advantage in some ways on the depending on the margin so we'll have to look at that yeah that's that's kind of interesting you know one other point i wanted to to make about those uh those rocket lab warrants um you know a lot of people have raised questions about um capital raises for rocket lab and you know they've mentioned in the past they want to be acquisitive so there's there's questions of how much cash they need to kind of fund opera- operations as they continue to grow um but but the fact that they've already got these these warrants out there um which will be a cash generation uh, mechanism for the company, I think is, is a good thing. Uh, so they can effectively raise $374 million um, without any kind of change to the expected dilution from the company because the market, you know, as long as the stock is above 1150, the market's going to expect that those warrants will be, um, uh, you know, executed. So um, I, I think that's a good thing for the company that, um, you know, that they can call those whenever they need that cash, that'll kind of fund the growth. Uh, and pr- hopefully put um, 
the brakes on any kind of concerns of excessive capital raising. All right, question from Alex B. When do you expect Rocket Lab to become cash flow positive? You have any thoughts on that, Matt? Why I look for another question? Yeah, I think they um, they put in their investor presentation. I want to say it was twenty twenty three. They expected to be cash flow positive, which um, and I'm not a hundred percent certain that was the exact year, but it was. It surprised me because it was a lot earlier than I would have expected. Um, but you, they really are incredibly. Um, conscious of, of kind of their costs and, and doing things in a cost-effective manner. Um, and the fact that they're, they're moving so fast um, and, and, and doing so much with so little to me makes that, that projection, um, it gives it some credibility. So uh, it's obviously not, a, not a given, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if they're not, you know, at least kind of break even by say 2025 uh, and they could do even better than that. Okay. From Jim Zhang, Bitcoin ETF versus Coinbase. That's interesting because I think a lot of people did get, um, did see a way to get exposure to Bitcoin through uh, owning Coinbase, the business, you know, since Coinbase's business is heavily dependent on Bitcoin's success. So I think a lot of people did see that. Now there's a Bitcoin ETF out there that's probably a much more, I mean, that is much more correlated versus Coinbase as a business. So I do think that um, you know they're, 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 that's an interesting uh, comparison. Those two things—they both are heavily correlated to Bitcoin's movement, obviously. Um, yeah. And what, what do you think mean, with MicroStrategy too? I mean, MicroStrategy yeah. is another kind of correlated MicroStrategy asset. MicroStrategy is another one. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would say MicroStrategy, and there's another one or two out there like MicroStrategy. So I wonder if those companies, you know, maybe the futures ETF isn't isn't a good enough um, vehicle given the short, you know, the, the long-term holding can tangle costs and costs of rolling over futures contracts and such. Um, um, but maybe when there's the next Bitcoin, the spot ETF, then you'll see, you'll see rotations out of MicroStrategy. I would think you'd see some money coming out of MicroStrategy and Coinbase just for the fact that people who are speculating on Bitcoin just by buying those stocks now would buy the spot ETF instead. Um, but I don't know how incremental that will change the price of Coinbase and such at that time. Do you have any ideas, Matt? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for, for me personally, I, I don't think I'd want to do either. Now, Coin, Coinbase, I definitely like more than the ETF. I mean, uh, I, I've always been hesitant to have futures-based ETFs because of the, you know, contango and backwardation risks that we, we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, so I'd, I'd rather either own the underlying or own a business like Coinbase, which, uh, you know, can make some margin you know, kind of selling to those providers. So uh, kind of like the the shovels and, and picks, you know, um, analogy to to gold miners. So, um, yeah, I, I would avoid the futures contracts based ETF. Um, but, you know, MicroStrategy, Coinbase, I like those. And I, I also, you know, would, wouldn't mind custodying some of the uh, underlying asset myself, too. Um, okay. Uh, well, we're running up on our hour time. Let's just do one more question from Twitter. And the right. question is from cooked stew, uh, says the good. So investment Twitter account was made a year ago. Can you reflect on the past year, maybe some highlights or lowlights, what you've learned and what you're, you'll be doing different over the coming year. Thanks. So yeah, I did uh, set up the Goodstone Invest's Twitter account a, a year ago. I was in the early days of forming this business and, I have learned a lot. Um, I have learned that 
you know, running a business uh, is always more work than you think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's good to have uh, uh, valuable um, uh, support with it. Um, you know, Matt came on uh, six or seven months ago and has been an incredible help as we've matured. And um, but yeah, I mean, I would say the one of the best things Matt and I talk about is the fact that we get to this channel, this invest, this good soil investment YouTube channel is actually, you know, we're, we're in the early days of it, I think, still. But I think it's going to provide an opportunity to kind of open source research as we expand upon interviews that we have coming. Um, we've got some really cool ideas to get some score, some really cool interviews, I think, coming up. So we're hoping to to work that out. And um, yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts is just kind of learning um investing in stocks is also fun but you can only make so many trades and you can invest and dedicate so much time to research listening to research reading research listening to interviews um but also just talking to other people and meeting new people virtually most of the time uh in different industries that have a very different view on things you know whether it's taylor ogan or chuck cook or we got some more people coming on um it's really been a really fun time. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, you know, I obviously wasn't around a year ago when you when you started this. Um, I think I was probably only mildly aware of, of you. I'd probably only seen one or two of your your interviews at that point. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a crazy ride to go from you know leaving my job, you know, back in January, I think it was, and making that decision, and then having a conversation with you just on you know kind of life advice, and then it transforming into you know, working on this and getting this channel going. And, but yeah, I, I com completely agree with you that, you know, the, the opportunity to have conversations and interact with other folks and kind of uh, learn from different points of view is incredibly valuable. Um, and so I always love having these conversations. I mean, you know, you and I don't always agree on everything either. And, and I find no, that no, a lot of people yeah. would say like, oh gosh, like uh, you, you gotta be on the same page about every single thing, but no, like yeah. it's, it's actually really helpful to have different points of view and say, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong about this particular thing. So I better sharpen my point of view on that. And if, if you're not open to kind of learning and, and adjusting your own mental models, uh, I don't think you'll be a very successful investor. So yeah, I'd love the opportunity to, you know, learn from you and have these conversations and, and also, uh, you know, from, from the guests that we've had on. So I'm very excited to kind of see how this goes. Um, I'm, if we look back one year from now, I, I imagine we'll have a uh, this this channel will probably look a lot different by then, and, and I can't really wait to see what that ex exactly uh, what that ride does look like. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we have a lot of great questions. Next time we'll uh, I think spend more time uh, doing more questions. Um, great, everyone's participating on this, and we'll end the stream now. But yeah, next week we'll do another chat, um, go over more stuff, and. Uh, we got some interesting guests. We got an interview with a, a, a Bloomberg analyst soon on on Roblox and and the metaverse space, the coming metaverse space, and Roblox's potential um, uh, role now and going forward. So that'll be really interesting. We're going to try to get a Rocket Lab, SpaceX kind of just roundtable discussion going. We'll try to get some more Tesla bears maybe at some point. It'd be great to try to score a few Tesla bears on here just to openly discuss their viewpoints or skepticism on Tesla. And uh, we'll just see if we can keep the content rolling, you know, steadily going forward. So thanks for watching, everyone. Matt, uh, I'll see you soon on our team uh, meeting. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone.